You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist and your host for the latest mental health-related news, keeping you up to date on any news related to the mind, brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports on research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment, and better informing the general public about mental health-related issues in general. And welcome back to the show. This is the August 6, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today, and hope you've been feeling well lately. First up on tonight's show, a potentially very exciting new development that could lead to prevention of suicide. Now, very sadly, there are many times when there's no sign that someone was going to take their life, uh, whereas in some cases people have long mentioned their feelings of wanting to die and perhaps made previous attempts. Uh, in other cases, there's really just no way to know that this was going to happen. And this new development, uh, while it hopefully might save lives, uh, is certainly not going to be infallible, and uh, it's certainly a good ways from being available to doctors to use to prevent suicide, but nonetheless, the development is exciting. And it's a blood test that could tell doctors if someone is at risk for suicide based on alterations to a single gene. Johns Hopkins researchers say they have discovered a chemical alteration in a single human gene linked to stress reactions that, if confirmed in larger studies, could give doctors a simple blood test to reliably predict a person's risk of attempting suicide. The discovery was described online in the American Journal of Psychiatry, suggests that changes in a gene involved in the function of the brain's response to stress hormones plays a significant role in turning what might otherwise be an unremarkable reaction to the strain of everyday life into suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Suicide is a major preventable public health problem, but we have been stymied in our prevention efforts because we have no consistent way to predict those who are at increased risk of killing themselves. That, according to study leader Zachary Kaminsky of Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and he says, with a test like ours, we may be able to stem suicide rates by identifying those people and intervening early enough to head off a catastrophe. For his series of experiments, Dr. Kaminsky and his colleagues focused on a genetic mutation in a gene known as SKA2. By looking at brain samples from mentally ill and healthy people, the researchers found that in samples from people who had died by suicide, levels of SKA2 
were significantly reduced. Within this common mutation, they then found in some subjects a genetic modification that altered the way the SKA2 gene functioned without changing the gene's underlying DNA sequence. The modification added chemicals called methyl groups to the gene. Higher levels of this methylation were then found in the same study subjects who had killed themselves. The higher levels of methylation among suicide victims were then replicated in two independent brain cohorts. Now, in another part of the study, researchers tested three different sets of blood samples. The largest one involving 325 participants in the Johns Hopkins Center for Prevention Research Study, and they found similar changes at the SKA2 gene in individuals with suicidal thoughts or having made attempts. They then designed a model analysis that predicted which of the participants were experiencing suicidal thoughts or had attempted suicide, and they did so with 80% certainty. Those with more severe risk of suicide were predicted with 90% accuracy. And in the youngest data set, they were able to identify with 96% accuracy whether or not a participant had attempted suicide based on blood test results. The SKA2 gene is expressed in an area of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is an area involved in inhibiting negative thoughts and controlling impulsive behavior. SKA2 is specifically responsible for chaperoning stress hormone receptors into the nuclei of cells so they can do their job. If there isn't enough SKA2 or it is altered in some way, the stress hormone receptor is unable to suppress the release of cortisol throughout the brain. Previous research has shown that such cortisol release is abnormal in people who attempt or who die by suicide. You recognize the name cortisol as being the chief stress hormone. Dr. Kaminsky says a test based on these findings might best be used to predict future suicide attempts in those who are ill, to restrict lethal means or methods among those at risk, or to make decisions regarding the intensity of intervention approaches. Now I can only I can already sense a little level of controversy there uh, that someone might propose using a blood test to determine who's at risk and somehow put more restrictions on them as a result. It might make sense for use in the military to test whether members have, have this gene mutation that makes them more vulnerable. Those at risk could be more closely monitored when they returned home after deployment. A test could also be useful in a psychiatric emergency room as part of a suicide risk assessment when doctors try to assess level of suicide risk. The test could be used 
in all sorts of safety assessment decisions like the need for hospitalization and closeness of monitoring. Another possible use that needs more study could be to inform treatment decisions, such as whether or not to give certain medications that have been linked with suicidal thoughts. So this is very promising, even though it's in its very early stages. And uh, if this were developed further and the findings confirmed, someday soon doctors may be able to do blood tests to see who's at risk for suicide and then single them out for more intensive preventative interventions. Uh, it's exciting news, potentially life-saving, obviously, and I'll be sure to bring you updates uh, as they come in. <clears throat> now, speaking of blood tests for serious psychiatric illnesses, there's another article, this one about a biomarker for postpartum depression. And that biomarker would be monoamine oxidase A. Now, we'll learn what that is shortly. Many women suffer from what's called baby blues after giving birth. That's estimated to be about 80% of most deliveries, actually. Some even develop full-blown postpartum depression in the weeks that follow. And that's estimated to be something on the order of 10 to 15% of women who uh, deliver a baby. Now, monoamine oxidase A is an enzyme responsible for the breakdown of neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. And it turns out that it plays an important role in postpartum depression. In comparison to healthy women, women who experience postpartum depression present strongly elevated levels of this enzyme in their brains. And this was discovered by a Canadian-German research team. Their findings could help in the prevention of postpartum depression and in the development of new drugs for its treatment. For most women, the birth of their baby is one of the most strenuous but also happiest days in their lives. However, joy and happiness are often followed by fatigue and exhaustion. The vast majority of women experience a temporary drop in mood for a few days after birth. These symptoms of baby blues are not an illness. However, in some cases, they can represent early signs of an imminent episode of depression. In some 13% of mothers, the emotional turmoil experienced after childbirth leads to the development of a full-blown postpartum depression. Postpartum depression is harmful not only to the mother, but also to the baby. It is difficult to treat this condition effectively as its precise neurobiological causes have remained unidentified to date. The new study shows that postpartum depression is accompanied by strongly elevated monoamine oxidase A in the brain, particularly in the areas called the prefrontal cortex and also in the anterior cingulate cortex. 
In women with postpartum depression, the values recorded of monominoxidase A were 21% higher than those of women who were not plagued by negative feelings after giving birth. Women who did not develop full-blown depression but found themselves crying more often than usual due to depressed mood also presented moderately elevated values of monoamine oxidase A. Well, we'll continue to talk about the implications of this enzyme elevation in postpartum depression and how it might lead to a test to see which women are vulnerable to it when we come back from our first commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott with all the latest mental health news. We'll be right back after this break. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's Food Link was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, the show with all the latest mental health-related news. This is your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about how monoamine oxidase A levels are elevated in certain areas of the brain of women with postpartum depression. So researchers think this finding should lead to promoting strategies that help reduce these levels of this enzyme, monoamine oxidase A, uh, avoiding everything that makes these these values rise. Now, what are things that result in elevated monoamine oxidase A in the brain? Well, it turns out heavy smoking does it. So does alcohol consumption and chronic stress, for example, When a mother feels neglected and abandoned by her partner and family, that's something we already know is a risk factor for postpartum depression. Now, a new generation of long-established medications could also play an important role in the treatment of postpartum depression in the future. Up to now, depressed mothers are mainly given medications that increase the concentration of serotonin in the brain. However, because monoamine oxidase A breaks down not only serotonin, but also other monoamines like dopamine and noradrenaline, a treatment that directly targets monoamine oxidase A could have a higher success rate, particularly in very serious cases. This alternative is provided by 
selective and reversible monoamine oxidase A inhibitors. The first monoamine oxidase inhibitors often had very severe side effects, for example, extreme high blood pressure, which necessitated adherence to a strict diet to uh, avoid this reaction. The new selective and reversible monoamine oxidase inhibitors are much better tolerated. In the next stage of this research involving clinical trials, scientists intend to test the effectiveness of these reversible monoamine oxidase A inhibitors in the treatment of postpartum depression. Because the measurement of this enzyme in the brain requires complex technology, it is not suitable for routine testing. So researchers are also looking for a peripheral marker of this enzyme that can be detected in saliva or the blood. Four years ago, the same group of researchers already succeeded in showing that in the first week postpartum, the concentration of the enzyme monoamine oxidase A in the brain is on average 40% higher than in women who had not recently given birth. The monoamine oxidase A values behave in the opposite way to estrogen levels. When estrogen levels drop acutely after childbirth, the concentration of monoamine oxidase A rises. This drastic change also influences serotonin levels. In most women, the values quickly return to normal. In others, they remain raised and therefore promote the development of depression. All right, so in one week, we have a couple of very interesting potential blood tests for serious psychiatric problems, one to see who may commit suicide, another who's vulnerable to postpartum depression. Uh, this is very positive for uh, projected advances in our field and in general the direction that psychiatry is finally headed that we'll be able to diagnose and treat illness somewhat similarly or more similarly to the way uh, non-psychiatric physicians diagnose and treat illness by diagnostic testing uh, rational and preventative care. Now, there's been a lot of articles lately about <clears throat> the risks of depression or elevating the risks of dementia or having depression increasing the risk of dementia. So I thought that we should discuss that. New research reveals that people with depression are at a higher risk of developing dementia suggesting that proper treatment of depressive symptoms could lower a person's risk for cognitive decline later in life. We've known for a long time that people with some depression are more likely to develop cognitive decline and dementia in old age than people without depression. But dementia takes a long time to develop, more than a decade and there's been a school of thought that depression was perhaps an early sign of the development of dementia and not a true risk factor. And this study would indicate that that is not the case. 
Another theory has suggested that depression and dementia were caused by the same abnormality in the brain, which would mean that higher levels of dementia would lead to more severe depression. The current study revealed the opposite. They found that people did not become more depressed, and some even became less depressed after they developed dementia. Furthermore, depression was not related to the common brain abnormalities that really drive dementia in old age. So depression appears to be a genuine risk factor for cognitive decline. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta, 9.1%, approximately 28 million Americans, suffer from depression, with people ages 45 to 64 at the highest risk. Most of the participants in the study did not suffer from major depression and showed only mild to moderate symptoms, yet they still were more likely to suffer cognitive decline. These were not necessarily people who were going to see a psychiatrist for their condition. The message is that mild to moderate depressive symptoms make a difference by the time you reach old age. So we should think about more aggressively treating these less severe cases. The study involved 1,764 people with an average age of 77 who had no thinking or memory problems at the start of the study. Participants were screened every year for symptoms of depression, such as loneliness and lack of appetite, and they took tests on their thinking and memory skills for an average of eight years. A total of 680 people died during the study, and autopsies were performed on 582 of them to look for the plaques and tangles in the brain that are related to dementia, as well as other signs of damage in the brain. During the study, 922 people, 52% of the participants, developed mild cognitive impairment or mild problems with memory and thinking abilities that is often a precursor to Alzheimer's disease. A total of 315 people, or 18%, developed dementia. Those who developed both mild cognitive impairment and dementia were more likely to have a higher level of symptoms of depression when they were diagnosed. Although the current research has shown for years that if you place animals under chronic stressful conditions, a series of changes in the brain occur that are linked to elevated levels of stress hormones. Most people think it's the higher levels of stress hormones that are at least partially responsible for the connection between depression and cognitive decline. So can treating depression really lower a person's risk of developing dementia? While that link would be game-changing, right now there is no supporting evidence. The study hopefully will lead to some change in that. 
Uh, we need to understand what depression is doing to the brain that is causing cognitive decline. But regardless of why it's happening, these results suggest that treating depression should reduce the risk of dementia. Okay, next up on tonight's show. Have you ever been very nervous when it comes to flying on airplanes? Turns out that fear of flying is actually quite common. And I came across this article with some tips about how to get past that. So I thought I would share that with you um, because the likelihood that some of you listening out there have this fear of flying is quite high, unfortunately. And uh, one or more of you may find some of these tips helpful. Well, we'll examine each one and just see how helpful they might be. As any anxious flyer can attest, air travel can inspire a sense of dread, panic, and at worst, paralyzing fear. The stress-inducing scenarios can make even the most experienced flyers apprehensive. Turbulence could rattle the plane. A feeling of entrapment could result in claustrophobia. Just pondering whether your pilot is well-rested or if your plane's instruments are intact could spark the jitters. Add a fear of hyperventilation or a panic attack in flight, and it's easy to see why as many as 6.5% of Americans suffer from such a severe fear of flying that it's classified as an anxiety disorder or phobia, according to the National Institute of Mental Health. Fortunately, you don't have to succumb to air travel fear. There are seven smart strategies for alleviating anxiety before takeoff and staying calm and collected at cruising altitude. First thing is determine your triggers. Fear of flying is really a confluence of many different fears. By singling out the anxiety that provokes your fear, be it a phobia related to turbulence, crashing, or claustrophobia, for example, you can identify the alarming thoughts and images that cause distress and abate flight anxiety. Many nervous flyers avoid taking to the skies entirely, which makes it increasingly challenging to face your fear on dry land. Well, we're going to take a commercial break here, and when we come back, we'll continue with these tips on how to overcome fear of flying. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or... 
help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national. Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay, with all the latest mental health-related news. And we're getting back to our discussion of how to cope with fear of flying. Now, it's important to recognize your underlying fears in order to undergo the appropriate treatment. A good assessment of the fears is very important. Now, once you've identified where your anxiety comes from, you can practice cognitive behavioral therapy, which includes such techniques as relaxation and breathing. Also, it includes exposing yourself to the triggers of your anxiety to eventually vanquish your fear of flying altogether. It's important to differentiate expectations from reality. Many nervous flyers suffer from a fear of fear. In other words, people are afraid they will not be able to mitigate or control their anxiety in midair. When we get very anxious, we become intolerant of risk. Though there are stressful situations that are beyond our control, there are some simple ways to ease anticipatory anxiety a phenomenon in which travelers build up negative expectations to respond to the thought of encountering a terrifying trigger. Anticipatory anxiety is worse than the actual anxiety experienced throughout air travel. To pacify high anticipatory stress, rely on practical logic that your initial anxiety will subside after rapid changes in altitude or brief moments of turbulence. Another important tool is remembering to distinguish real and imminent danger from present anxious thoughts which are emotional rather than logical. Another important point is not to dodge your flight or your fears. If you have a fear of flying, it may seem counterintuitive to board a plane. However, if you brace yourself for discomfort and confront your fears rather than stalling exposure, eventually you'll be able to say to yourself, I'm afraid, followed by the statement, I feel like I can handle it. And to overcome a fear of flying entirely, you will have to be willing to experience discomfort and take a leap of faith. Taking the reverse action from what feels feels natural can help you combat your anxiety head on. And it's also important to embrace the present. The key to managing anxiety is to stay closer to the present. 
instead of replaying the seemingly endless what-ifs. What if the plane crashes? What if the plane is hijacked? Assert control by turning your attention to the present. When we're anxious, our whole perspective changes. An excellent way to shift your feelings and ultimately your attitude is by staying focused on taking control of anxiety rather than the aspects of flying that are beyond your control, such as sounds, sensations, and turbulence. Another way to maintain focus is to socialize with your seatmates or flight attendant who can lend support and steer you back to the present. Packing comforting supplies such as music, crossword puzzles, magazines, a book, or another in-flight distraction can also alleviate anxiety. Mastering the art of slow rhythmic breathing can be very important. It's not an unnatural reaction for your heart rate and breathing to accelerate as your anxiety kicks in during your flight. In fact, this is quite typical. While a fight-or-flight physiological reaction is an automatic response to a frightening trigger, taking deep breaths through your diaphragm may help you find peace. Making your breaths steady and rhythmic will help you combat hyperventilation and induce muscle relaxation. By taking controlled breaths with gradual exhalations, you'll calm your nerves and reduce your stress levels before, during, and after takeoff. It's very important to use this technique. Breathe very deeply and slowly in through your nose and out through your mouth. It's also recommended to go with the flow. Your instinct may be to go against the movement of the aircraft, but experts say you should do just the opposite. When you fight turbulence, you have extra muscle tension. When you come across bumps, letting your body hang loose and sway with the motion, rather than going against the rhythm of the plane, will help you stay at ease. Also, reduce your caffeine intake and fly on a full stomach to help you relax and avoid hyperventilation. Taking these precautions will make you more equipped to handle turbulence, bumps, or other discomforting situations. And finally, the article recommends reviewing aircraft mechanics, physics, and sounds. Remember the adage, knowledge is power? When it comes to conquering a fear of flying, understanding flight mechanics, safety statistics, and how fear and anxiety affect the human body can help you ground your fears. It's recommended that you find out something about maintenance and understand how safe a plane flight really is. You can do this by educating yourself on safety measures with online resources or books covering the subject, attending a group therapy program, or even meeting a pilot. To combat the fear of having a panic attack or a heart attack, you not only need to be informed about aviation, but also need to learn about fear and its effects on the body during high-stress situations. Digital apps that provide visual and audio aids 
for remedying in-flight anxiety can also be useful. The flight app VALK, designed by the VALK Foundation, is a tool intended to put anxious flyers at ease by supplying aviation facts, therapeutic exercises, and coping techniques. Among other helpful features, the app offers a brief aviation lesson, flight statistics, information pertaining to turbulence, and even a panic button that prompts an audio message from a therapist that promises to help users decrease their stress. The app is available on iPhone for $3.99 and Android for $4.88 and does not require an internet connection while your electronic device is switched to airplane mode. And finally, for additional information and tips, consult the Anxiety and Depression Association of America's resource page. So there you have it. Hopefully those tips will help those of you who suffer fear of flying get through your next flight more comfortably. Now I'd like to turn my attention to a follow-up on a story that I talked to you about last week. You'll recall that a psychiatrist was forced to pull his own gun to defend himself and others around him against a homicidal patient who had already killed his own social worker. Well, a follow-up story on that is that this killing shows the safety gap that exists in mental health care. When a man opened fire at a hospital outside Philadelphia, fatally shooting his caseworker and wounding his psychiatrist, the doctor saved his own life and probably the lives of others by pulling out a gun and shooting the patient. If Dr. Lee Silverman's decision to arm himself at the office was unusual, the violence that erupted at Mercy Fitzgerald Hospital served as yet another illustration of the hazards mental health professionals face on the job. And, experts say, the need for hospitals to do more to protect them. Nurses, social workers, aides, and other mental health providers are at far greater risk of assault than workers as a whole, an occupational hazard at the best of times, and one that's been made worse by a persistent lack of funding for mental health services, the loss of thousands of inpatient psychiatric beds, and the increasing use of hospitals to temporarily house criminals with mental illness. Ignoring the problem, many healthcare facilities have failed to provide a safe working environment for their employees, workplace violence experts said. Hospitals don't want to have a reputation as being the wild, wild west, so they try to minimize it and keep it quiet. The great majority of people with mental illness are not violent. Unfortunately, as in all populations, there are outliers, which is why it is important to be aware and alert. A Department of Justice survey found 55,882 workplace violent crimes against psychiatrists, social workers, 
and other mental health professionals from 2005 to 2009, making them four times as likely to be assaulted on the job as workers generally, according to statistics compiled by the United States Department of Justice. Independent experts said the number of assaults is almost certainly far higher because violent incidents are grossly underreported. That reluctance often stems from a belief among mental health providers that violent outbursts come with the territory or a fear that they'll be blamed for provoking the attack or an unwillingness to turn in someone they're trying to help. And healthcare administrators often discourage reporting. No one wants bad publicity that potentially comes from workers reporting that they've suffered an assault. In the latest case of violence, authorities said Richard Plotz, 49 years old, shot and killed his caseworker, 53-year-old Teresa Hunt, and wounded Dr. Silverman during a July 24th appointment at Mercy Fitzgerald Hospital outside Philadelphia. Silverman, who was grazed in the temple and thumb, crouched behind a chair, pulled out his own gun and fired several shots at Plotz, who has been charged with murder. The psychiatrist has not spoken publicly about the shooting, but prosecutors have said he regularly carried a weapon for protection. So he obviously uh, had a good reason for doing so and knew something might happen at some point. We'll take a commercial break here and continue discussing the situation when we come back from that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that chronic nasal congestion, a decreased sense of smell, and asthma can be signs of allergies? Allergies are caused when the body is exposed to things you breathe in or eat that the body does not like. The body's immune system reacts and attacks it, what it perceives to be the enemy, even if it causes no harm, like pet dander or dust. This leads to swelling. In the nose, this causes congestion. In the bowel, it causes stomach bloating and diarrhea. In the lung, it causes shortness of breath and wheezing. And in the skin, it causes hives and itching. The first line of defense against allergy is avoidance. Dust proofing, washing pets, and keeping them out of the bedroom can help with environmental causes. For food allergies, keeping a diary of things eaten and reaction to them is helpful. Allergy testing is less time-consuming and is a safe and effective way to identify allergies. For a complete evaluation, you should see your allergy specialist. For years, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center has been providing outstanding care to patients of all ages. They are dedicated to patient satisfaction and have been the recipient of the Georgia Otolaryngology Association Patient Satisfaction Award. They welcome any questions you may have about their services. Their practice includes treatment of asthma, allergies, sleep apnea, snoring, hearing impairments, and chronic sinus disease. Dr. Elena George is a board-certified ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Her training in New York has included training at Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital and Memorial Sloan. Kettering Cancer Center. She believes in practicing both the art and science of medicine. All patients are seen by Dr. George. All treatment options are discussed and time will be spent to answer all questions. Their office is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, you can be confident that you are in good hands with their professional team. 
This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott, your psychiatrist and your host for the latest mental health related updates. And we're following up on the shooting in a Philadelphia mental health facility, or a facility near Philadelphia, I should say, where a psychiatrist had to draw his own guns and defend himself and others against a patient who had already committed murder. Now, the exchange of gunfire occurred on the third floor of the hospital's wellness center. Authorities have said there were no surveillance cameras in the doctor's office or the waiting area outside, nor does the center have metal detectors. A Mercy spokeswoman said the hospital, which has a policy of prohibiting employees from carrying guns is reviewing its security procedures. Uh, I'm curious to see why there's not been any comment so far of the obvious discrepancy between this stated policy and the fact that Dr. Silverman uh, was uh, known to have kept a weapon on him. Mental health workers typically receive training on how to recognize when a patient might be about to become violent and on verbal de-escalation techniques aimed at preventing it. Some hospitals also train in self-defense. Mental health professionals are often especially vulnerable to injury because their first impulse is to help. There is this conflict in your thinking right away. What you're trained to do is to try to help this person. To make it click in your mind that you are under threat now sometimes takes a while. In rare cases, the attacks are fatal. 20 people in healthcare report uh, support occupations, a category that includes psychiatric workers, were killed on the job from 2005 to 2009, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration has published safety guidelines for psychiatric staff and other healthcare workers, recommending metal detectors, enclosed nursing stations, multiple exits, furniture bolted to the floor in a crisis, uh, curved mirrors at hallway intersections, and a variety of other steps. But the guidelines are voluntary, and congressional investigators are looking into whether they have been widely implemented and whether they should become mandatory. That doesn't address the issue of how all those safety measures would be paid for. While as more developments come in on this story, I'll be sure to bring them to you. Many baby boomers are concerned about loss of memory as they get older. Well, this is information that I think should give some of them pause, uh, especially those who are heavy drinkers, because 
Here's another study that shows a direct correlation between heavy drinking and memory problems in old age. Uh, people who have a history of drinking problems by the time they are middle-aged are more than twice as likely to exhibit memory problems in later life as those who don't, according to a study that followed 6,500 Americans for two decades. A drinking problem was defined as answering yes to at least two of four questions in a widely used screening questionnaire for alcoholism, which was, have you ever felt like you should cut down on your drinking? That's the first of four questions. The second is, have people ever annoyed you by criticizing your drinking? The third question is, have you ever felt guilty about drinking? And the fourth question is, and have you ever had a drink first thing in the morning? Now, this questionnaire, which I just read to you, is known by the acronym CAGE, C-A-G-E. Uh, <clears throat> the way you remember this is the C stands for cut down. So the first question, have you ever felt like you should cut down on your drinking? And the second question, uh, the letter A stands for annoyed. Have people ever annoyed you by criticizing your drinking? The third question, remembered by the letter G, stands for guilty. Have you ever felt guilty about drinking? And the fourth letter E stands for I, uh, or that is for eye-opener, meaning have you ever had a drink first thing in the morning to get yourself going? Researchers at the University of Exeter in England examined records from a major longitudinal study that tracked the health of thousands of Americans born between 1931 and 1941. Participants answered the alcohol questionnaire when they were first interviewed in their 50s and 60s, and then they had follow-up cognitive assessments every other year from 1996 to 2010. Only 16% said they had a drinking problem at some point. They were far more likely to show memory problems on the later word recall tests. The study was published in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry. Now, the lead author was quoted as saying, doesn't matter if you were a heavy drinker in your 20s as opposed to your 40s. We can't tell from this study. That's important to look at in future research. Other studies suggest that early alcohol-related cognitive damage may be reversible if people stop drinking. One in three cases of cognitive impairment in late life are potentially preventable with regular exercise, cutting down on drinking, losing unwanted pounds, getting regular sleep, and giving up smoking. Good advice. And that would be helpful if people actually heeded it. Here's another article about memory. This is how all-nighters alter your memories. And this is uh, directed at a much younger population. I thought of college students, of course, when I, when I read that title. People who don't get enough sleep could be increasing their risk of developing false memories, according to a new study. In the study, when researchers compared the memory of people who'd had a good night's sleep 
with the memory of those who hadn't slept at all, they found that under certain conditions, sleep-deprived individuals mix fact with imagination, embellish events, and even remember things that never actually happened. False memories occur when people's brains distort how they remember a past event, whether it's what they did after work, how a painful relationship ended, or what they witnessed at a crime scene. So this brings to mind how it can affect things like eyewitness reports. Memory is not an exact recording of past events. Rather, fresh memories are constructed each time people mentally revisit a past event. During this process, people draw from multiple sources, like what they've been told by others, what they've seen in photographs, or what they know as stereotypes or expectations. These new findings have implications for people's everyday lives, recalling information for an exam or in work contexts, but also for the reliability of eyewitnesses who may have experienced periods of restricted or deprived sleep. Chronic sleep deprivation is on the rise. A previous study observed that people with restricted sleep, that is less than five hours a night, were more likely to incorporate misinformation into their memories of certain photos and report that they had seen video footage of a news event that didn't happen. In the current study, they wanted to see how a complete lack of sleep for 24 hours could influence a person's memory. The researchers used a process called event encoding to explore sleep's effect on memory. First, they showed 100 undergraduate students, some of whom slept from midnight to 8 a.m. and others who stayed awake all night, a photo of a man tucking a woman's wallet into his jacket pocket. Forty minutes later, the students read false information about the photo, which said that the man put the wallet in his pants pocket rather than his jacket. Finally, the researchers asked the students where they thought the man put the wallet and how they knew that information. They found that compared to the participants who had slept, those who had endured an entire night of sleep deprivation were more likely to falsely recall that the inaccurate, misleading information came from the original photographs. The findings have wider implications for police interrogations and shows how a lack of sleep might affect eyewitnesses' recollection of events. Police interrogations can go for hours and hours into the night. This type of thing is less common today, but it does happen, and it is probably not a good idea if the goal is to protect the integrity of a witness's memory. A better understanding of the mechanisms behind sleep deprivation and memory is needed before scientists can make specific recommendations for law enforcement processes. However, allowing eyewitnesses to go home to get a good night's rest before testifying could also alter what they remember, since memories fade with time. This makes you think of legal proceedings where you hear uh, defense lawyers hammering away at eyewitness reports and questioning their recall of events repeatedly until they eventually break down on the stand and admit they may be wrong about what they 
remember, or prolonged efforts at poking holes in eyewitness testimony. I think the results of the study gives us some insight uh, into how this may happen. Past studies have linked a lack of sleep to false memories, but these studies tested memory by using lists of words, which has less real-world significance than photos of events do. The study was published July 16th in the journal Psychological Science. Perhaps information like this could be used in criminal and forensic investigations uh, to validate that an eyewitness's recall of events closer to the time of the events is more accurate than the memories that they maintain and report over a longer period of time. This certainly uh, would definitely have implications uh, for criminal investigations. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show, folks. I hope that you enjoyed the mental health-related information that I very much enjoyed bringing to you. And I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.